0: Well, it's April 1st. Venus is the star ascending. Astrological analysts report that because President Reagan is an
1: Aquarius... Headless body in topless bar. We'll have a report. Duran Duran tells us why the proposed value-added tax is a bad idea. That and more tonight on all things... You don't hear a lot of this kind of stuff these days, but public radio used to prank listeners every year on April 1st with satirical broadcasts passed off as regular, serious programming. Fake news, but in a fun, if sometimes cringy, way. Like in 1991, when WBEZ pretended to switch formats. We're going
0: from talk, 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 to rap, 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 all morning long. Starting with the big man, Kenny D, followed by... Mar- or
1: this spoof interview with an erotic novelist.
2: Anyway, I've had to edit it a little because I, uh, you know, for a radio audience, but I... Think it still retains the beauty, you know, of the scene. Margot leaned toward him, and his mouth found hers. Her lips parted slowly, and blank, 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 blank. And then his hand moved quietly across blank, 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 blank. She blank, 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 and he smiled
1: down. I'm Stephen Jackson, and that is how Public Radio has celebrated April Fool's Day. But there's a long history of trickery here in Chicago, and it's not always isolated to a single day of the year. On the show today, we're going to look closer at that history, because people have asked us a lot of questions about famous and infamous pranks over the years. To guide us through the morass, we have historian and educator Paul DeRica, and he has a long-standing interest in the weird backwaters of Chicago history. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you. Um... Before we jump into it, I'm curious, are you yourself a, a prankster? Do you observe the holiday?
0: You know, I think I'm somebody where there's a greater likelihood for someone to prank me than to be doing the pranking, in all honesty. <laughs> but this will be fun. I mean, this will be a great opportunity to, uh, to at least maybe share some of these pranks and, and hoaxes with
1: people and, and feel like
0: I'm, I'm in on the joke a little bit. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, happy to provide this opportunity. Yeah. So uh, what do you have for us today?
0: So today, you know, I've got three stories for you. Um, they're all from different moments in, in Chicago's past, but each one centers on a prank, hoax, or plot of some kind. And I was thinking, you know, since here we are in Curious City on WBEZ, I would pick three stories, all of which have something to do with media here in Chicago.
1: So after the break, we're handing the show over to Paul. That's next.
0: Our first story is something of a mystery. It may or may not have been a hoax, but it definitely was a mess, involving speculation, exaggeration, and some dubious motives. According to the newspapers, the winter of 1927 was a bad time to be a pigeon in Chicago's loop. Along with usual threats of cold temperatures and a scarcity of food, came the possibility of a sudden death from above, in the form of a hawk known as Captain Kidd. The captain first appeared in an article in the Chicago Journal early in January when a reporter wrote that he had seen a rather large hawk dining on some pigeons on the steps of the Art Institute. In the days that followed, Chicagoans began to write in with their own hawk sightings. At one time, it flew about 50 feet from my window, and I would say it's the largest hawk I've ever seen in my life, and I've seen a good many. Its wingspread to my judgment is... The reported sightings increased, and with it the belief that an increasing number of defenseless pigeons were being slaughtered. It has been killing pigeons for the lust of killing, and seems apt to stay here until Chicago's supply of pigeons is killed off." Soon enough, the Hawk got a nickname to reflect these brazen acts of air piracy, Captain Kid, with two Ds. For some reason, this story completely captured the attention of Chicago, and made it into the papers day after day. Camera catches Captain Kidd in flight over. Hawk seeks shelter on cross above temple building. Captain Kidd is coy. Wounded Hawk, found near loop. Chicago Hawk gets dirty deal. He's man's pal. Hawk hysteria had reached such a fever pitch by mid-January that first the Journal and then the Tribune offered a reward for the killer capture of the Captain. The Tribune set the highest bounty. $50 dead, $100 alive. Within a week, Hawk hunters were roaming the loop with rifles, bludgeons, and snares. And the birds started piling up, dead and alive. To date, the record reads, one peaceful hawk shot and killed in a tree in Garfield Park, one half-frozen hawk rescued rather than captured at the Chicago Beach Hotel, and one hawk said to have been lured into a mesh spread on the roof of the transportation building. Then there was an owl, at first mistaken for a hawk, which killed itself by flying against the walls of the county building. And it still looks as if Captain Kidd, happy in his reflection that their safety in numbers, will make his way over the loop today and tomorrow, and for the days thereafter, in peace and plenty. While all of this unfolded, the court of public opinion was divided. Some despised the captain for killing harmless pigeons, while others thought he was doing a public service. One alderman actually proposed an anti-hawk resolution to the city council. And I quote, There has recently come to our city a thief and a bandit. A murderer in the form of a hawk who has created consternation among peaceful pigeons that bring cheer to children and office-wearied workers and whereas though his beak is red with the blood of innocent victim another alderman introduced this counter-resolution any wild denizen of field or forest courageous enough to invade the loop and eat occasional pigeons said by some to be a public nuisance should be encouraged Therefore, be it resolved that we commend said hawk for his bravery and service to the community and discourage plots to take his life. Even the Board of Trade had an opinion. They were pro-hawk, anti-pigeon. So the obvious question here is, why did the personal lives of birds enrapture Chicago for several months? And I think what you have to consider is when these sightings occurred, in the winter of 1927. Bear in mind, this was at the height of Prohibition and all of the crime that was attached to it. Two years later would be the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. There were lots of acts of violence unfolding in the city streets, and perhaps in in some small way, Captain Kidd and his escapades provided a distraction, a relief from these real acts of violence that were occurring in the city streets. In any case, before too long, Chicago reached a hawk saturation point. The Chicago Journal announced they'd be releasing a fiction column based on the hawk's exploits, at which point other newspapers decided the story was played out. They stopped reporting on it, and the public moved on to other things. Captain Kidd's last appearance came in April of that year, when the Tribune, determined to have the last word, reported that Captain Kidd had finally been captured by one Larry McGill, who used his umbrella to render the bird unconscious on an L platform. The captain's reign had come to an end. Now whether the newspapers had hoaxed one another or the public remains an open question. All we have is the sensational reporting from the time. So was there one killer hawk, multiple hawks, or none at all? We still don't know. November 1987. It was the Sunday before Thanksgiving, just past 11 o'clock at night, and Doctor Who was on TTW. Oh yes, it's a lonely life up in the lighthouse, it Specifically, it was an episode from The Horror of Fang Rock. A classic if you're a Who fan, this story marks the one appearance of the Rutans, Eternal Foes of the Sontarans, which makes what happened next all the more serious. Unable to adjust the picture, Who viewers across Chicago sat transfixed as the screen went blank and an outside entity hijacked the transmission. For almost two full minutes this entity controlled the airwaves, and what was it? A man, or what appeared to be a man, standing before what appeared to be a corrugated piece of metal, wearing a Max Hedrum rubber mask. So who is Max Hedrum? This is Max <coughs> If you weren't around in the 80s, it's hard to explain. But Max Headroom was a blonde, square-jawed, suit-wearing, computer-generated TV personality. He's nothing but a robot. Now, he wasn't actually computer-generated. Talks a lot of nonsense. He was played by an actor with tons of makeup and some special effects. Yes, it takes all sorts to make a world. But robot or human, Max was a big deal. Uh, My first guest has been called TV's hottest personality who is not a person. There was a Max Headroom TV show, a couple books, a video game. He was even featured on a top 40 pop song, and for a while he was the pitchman for New Coke. Catch the wave. Coke. His likeness was also heavily licensed, and there was lots of Max Hedrum merchandise out there. T-shirts, mugs, and most relevant to our story, rubber masks. Unbeknownst to the viewers of Doctor Who, this was actually the second appearance of the Max Hedrum impersonator that evening. Two hours earlier, he'd managed to hijack a WGN news broadcast just as they were sharing highlights from the Bears game that day. But that was just a blip. Max stood silently on screen, accompanied by a strange buzzing sound, for about thirty seconds before the station rested back control. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, <laughs> so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news. From- what unfolded on WTTW was different. Now hijacking a television transmission is no easy feat. It takes a lot of technical knowledge combined with highly specialized equipment and an immense power source. So considering the effort that must have gone into this prank, you'd think that Max would have planned something. Instead, the surviving footage suggests that once the signal was hijacked, he largely improvised. Between bits of unintelligible gibberish and moaning, Max took a swipe at WGN sports announcer Chuck Swirsky, calling him a frickin' liberal. He also mocked WGN's call letters, they're short for world's greatest newspaper, nerds. nerds. Pretended to drink a Pepsi, a clear reference to the real Max's preference for Coke. And for reasons that are truly impossible to fathom, hummed the theme song from the 1960s cartoon, Clutch Cargo. Now near the end of the transmission, there was a quick cut, and Max returned with his pants down, his posterior exposed, while a woman, whose face is just out of the frame, spanked him with a fly swatter. And then, the image flickered to black, and the episode of Doctor Who resumed. Viewers were perplexed, and pissed. Complaints flooded WTTW. This was the age of the VCR, and a lot of people were taping Doctor Who that night, and now their recording was ruined. The FCC also expressed concern. Pirating television signals was a pretty serious offense. But they were confident the man behind the mask could be identified and brought to justice. That never happened. Evidence suggests it was someone with inside knowledge of the two stations' operations and some kind of personal grievance against WGN. And, weirdly, Chuck Swirsky. But no arrests were ever made. To this day, the Max Hedrum incident, as it's commonly called, remains one of the greatest unsolved mysteries in broadcast history. At the corner of Wells and Superior in the River North neighborhood, there's a snug bar with a neighborhood feel. That also happens to be the site of the greatest media hoax in Chicago history. But it wasn't members of the media fooling one another, as may have been the case with Captain Kidd, or an unknown individual pranking the media, as in the Max Hedrum incident. In this case, it was undercover reporters themselves doing the hoaxing. And their target? The City of Chicago. To tell this story, we have to start in 1977 with journalist Pam Zechman. She and her colleagues kept receiving complaints from small business owners that city inspectors were demanding bribes, either to facilitate permits or to ignore code violations. Here's Zekman in a 2012 interview with WBEZ.
2: They complained about it, but they didn't want to cooperate in an investigation for fear that if they went public with their complaints, that the city powers that be would shut them down. Understandable fear. So we talked about it and we thought about it and decided that the only way we were going to be able to actually document this kind of thing was to
0: become the victims. Business owners won't talk to us about shakedowns? No problem. We'll just start our own business and see what happens. She pitched the idea to her editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. They gave it the green light and put a small team of reporters on the story. And with a $5,000 down payment, they took ownership of a ramshackle dive on Well Street. They did some renovations and opened for business under a new name, the Mirage Tavern.
2: And we were busy.
0: And right away, everyday corruption appeared. Their broker taught them how to cook their books and pay off city officials with envelopes of cash. Various city inspectors expressed their desire for personal payments to overlook problems like leaky pipes and maggots, or to fast-track permits. And it wasn't just city officials— Suppliers of standard bar amenities like pinball machines and jukeboxes had their own crooked demands. Now, the corruption was widespread, but it was also pretty low rent. Most people expected very small payoffs. $10 here, $25 there. Here's Zekman on 60 Minutes back in 78. The thing that astonishes me, Pam, is that the whole thing sounds so petty.
2: This is how they supplement their income. These are all city workers that make very low salaries, and they can pick up this money at each place that they stop at, and it it comes to quite a tidy sum.
0: Unbeknownst to all of these inspectors on the take, the Mirage had an uncommon architectural feature, a hidden compartment above the restrooms that allowed sometimes photographers to look out on the bar's main floor and snap pictures of everything.
2: It was a small loft. They were stuck up there for a long time. The photographers did an incredible job You know, we had some idea of when the inspectors were going to come, but
0: not always. In addition to documenting corruption, the reporters also had to run a tavern. One of them went to bartending school so he could keep up with customer demands. But not Zekman. One morning she was working the bar alone when some people came in and ordered margaritas.
2: I didn't know how to make the salt stick around the edge of the glass. Didn't know what went into a margarita. And the customers had to guide me in, uh, which must have been weird to them, but... They were there at 11 in the morning wanting margaritas. So,
0: After four months, the Mirage Tavern closed, and the Chicago Sun-Times released a 25-part series telling the whole story. It was like
2: a little soap opera, a
0: big soap opera. And the reporting produced results. Some city inspectors had charges brought against them, and the mayor formed the Office of Professional Review to combat corruption.
2: The reaction to it was phenomenal.
0: The Mirage reporting was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, but was ultimately rejected. The committee didn't like that the reporters had misrepresented themselves in order to get the story. But not everyone was so critical. The Columbia Journalism Review, appropriately enough, awarded the reporting an imaginary prize.
1: Paul, before we let you go... Are there any other stories that we maybe didn't have time to include but are are worth mentioning here? Oh, there are so many great stories. I really wish I had time to talk about the Whitechapel Club. They were a group of morbid-minded
0: Chicago journalists who, just for kicks, would kidnap out-of-town visitors. People like Chauncey Depew and the future president, William McKinley. Who's Chauncey Depew? Who is Chauncey Depew? Chauncey Depew was an executive with the New York Central Railroad and also kind of a prominent political figure of the day. And i just like the opportunity to say Chauncey deputy on the air. Because, <laughs> you, you know, you don't really get to do that all that often uh, in the 21st century. Uh, you know, there was this German restaurant that, uh, you know, actually was established in the 1880s. So it would have been around when the Whitechapel Club as well, and existed all the way to the 1990s called Schulian's. And one of its owner, Matt Shullian, he loved to prank his guests. So he actually created like a fake, a kind of hidden recording booth, Uh, where, you know, when people were visiting from out of town and eating in his restaurant, the radio would be on, and suddenly Shulian himself would break in, right, with a kind of like breaking news report. And invariably, he'd be reporting on some sort of cataclysmic disaster unfolding in the town that the person was visiting from. Uh, Usually, he would do this to prank uh, fire chiefs, basically claiming, for example, one time the fire chief of Detroit was at the restaurant, that all of Detroit it was a was blaze. Oh uh, this would cause the person, of course, to run for the door, which to me seems like very weird business strategy. Um, Did people think that was funny? I, you know, it's... <laughs> was it comedy? Was it tragedy plus time equals comedy or something like that? I forget the equation. Um, yeah, well, people seem to at least to take it in good spirit because when Shulian would prank, uh, in particular, like, you know, fire commissioners and things like that. Uh, When they got back to their hometowns, they would often send him like a fire helmet. And so when you'd go to the restaurant, you'd see this whole wall of fire helmets from all over the country. Wow. And then, uh, I don't know if this qualifies as a prank, but it kind of unfolded like one. So back in 1916, um, the sort of merchant princes of of Chicago decided that they were going to honor the newly installed uh, cardinal, George Mundelein by throwing a banquet for him at the uh, the university club. And unbeknownst to them, the chef at the club was an anarchist named Jean Crohn's. So Jean, seeing an opportunity, decided that he was going to poison the soup. Uh, But for reasons that are entirely unclear, the soup didn't actually end up killing anybody. It just made them all violently ill.
1: Uh, I've I've heard this story. And this is the uh, tragedy plus time equation in action, I think. Yes. Also the fact that many of them uh, pooped their pants, if I understand the story correctly.
0: Yes, yes. They managed to escape with their lives, but but not their dignity. And as for Jean Crohn's, he just sort of disappeared. So for all we know, he went on to, you know, prank or perhaps potentially try to kill other people. Who knows? It's one of those historical mysteries.
1: Uh, Well, maybe we'll revisit that another time, but I think we should should leave it on that intriguing note. Well, yes, I hope,
0: you know, that we can return and share some more of these stories. And, And thank you so much for having me. This week's episode was written and reported by Paul Jerica, director of exhibitions at the Chicago History Museum, and was produced by our former colleague, Stephen Jackson. And a very big thanks in this episode to Justine Tabiash, WBEZ's archivist, for helping us dig up the public radio humor you heard at the top of the show. Trust me, there is more where that came from.
1: Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. The show is produced by Jason Mark and me, Adriana Cardona-McGigot is our reporter,
0: Maggie Sivet is the digital and engagement producer, Maria Mendoza is WBEZ's podcast fellow, and Johanna Zorn edits the show. I'm Joe Disseau. Thanks for listening.
2: Before we start the show...